almost at the afternoon. It's great to see you. You guys made it into the room. Second service, looking fresh as always. Uh, everybody watching online, so glad you are here. Thank you for coming uh, and tuning in with us. Again, our Albion Monroe extensions. So good that you guys get to tune in with us. Now listen, if uh, you just started coming, you need to know we're in the middle of a series. Uh, we're nearing the end of it. It is called Dear God, because every once in a while, life gets exasperated. And you're just like, dear God, this has got to stop. Uh, so we've heard, dear God, why am I so lonely? Uh, dear God, why am I so fearful? Uh, today we are going to talk about, dear God, why am I so uncomfortable? Another way you could say it is, dear God, why does this have to hurt so bad? Dear God, why is this so confusing? Like, dear God, can't you please just make it stop? I mean, just make it stop. Like, for once, does it have to be so difficult? And so I got uh, a metronome here. I don't know if you can hear it. It's an antique, actually, which is kind of cool. Um, but anyway, metronomes. I'm not musical at all. I've tried before. It's just I think music is genetics. You can't learn it. People say you can. They lie. Um, so in like fourth grade, I tried the trumpet. It was probably my first mistake. Who in the world plays the trumpet? I don't know. But that's what I tried. Uh, I quit that after a couple weeks because it's horrible. Um, and then I tried the drums a little later. I was better at that. But who has any? Uh, I, practicing an instrument means you're sitting alone in your room. Uh, I was like, why, why would I be alone? I, like, I have too many friends. I was way too popular for instruments. So uh, I didn't make it. We didn't even get into the metronome conversation. That's how fast it went. But I do know uh, that this thing, right now it's keeping a beat and a rhythm. Now what's interesting is that if you're good at instruments, you can actually do a lot of things within each beat. There's a lot of different notes that you can play. A lot's going on inside of a beat of a metronome. But a good musician understands where the pocket is. A good musician can find a pocket and play in it. They can create things within the pocket of the metronome. Uh, a bad musician uh, doesn't even hear this thing. Like a bad musician has no time for a metronome, no time for a click track. I'm just going to go do my own thing. I'm going to be my own man, and I'm just going to play. Like you won't last in a band. You need the metronome. And I'm going to stop it because the noise is really driving me nuts. Um, but the... Uh, the amazing thing about life is that life actually does move at the rhythm of a metronome. Like life, you can count on certain things happening in life without fail. Like there are things, and the cycle and the rhythm is so predictable. Like eventually, something great is going to happen to you. Like you're going to get a girlfriend, you'll get a boyfriend, you're going to get engaged. Oh my gosh, it's so exciting. You'll get married. It's the best day of your life, right? It's like then you have kids and like it starts with the best and you're like, why did we do this? But then you have them and it's just great, you know. You get a dog and like life is awesome. You finally got that job. You got promoted. Like we bank on good moments, okay? And we try to fly from good moment to good moment. Like far be it from us to have anything bad happen. But I can promise you like you're going to go through some uncomfortable stretches. Like this is it's a guaranteed thing. Like if you're young and you're here and you're like, I've had a pretty good life so far, just buckle up. Like eventually something is going to happen that just doesn't feel the best. This is a rhythm and it's a cycle that is like it is going to happen. The secret to finding the pocket in life is what I want to talk about today. It is the, the, I would call it the secret of living a steadfast life. The secret to living a steadfast life. If you can live at the rhythm and the metronome of a steadfast life, you will save your future. I can promise you that. 
And so here's the deal. Uh, steadfast, you might not know this, the definition of steadfast is resolutely or dutifully unwavering. Resolutely unwavering. No matter what happens, a steadfast person is resolutely unwavering. And I don't know if you ever watch the news, but it seems like the world is getting increasingly more uncomfortable. Like every time you open your news app, you almost want to throw the phone through the window. You're like, what is even going on? Like every time you turn around, that's just the world. Like we're not even talking about our own personal lives. Like, but sometimes you go through seasons where you have so many plates spinning. Where it's like, if one thing goes wrong, every one of these places, it feels like it's going to come crashing down. Like, life seems to be getting increasingly more uncomfortable. But God is looking for a steadfast spirit in the midst of an uncomfortable world. God is actually looking for a group of people that say, we are going to be resolutely unwavering no matter how uncomfortable this thing gets. And there's actually, this wasn't lost on people in the Bible. In fact, many of them had far worse lives than could be imaginable. Uh, one of those guys we're going to spend a lot of time talking about today, his name is Joseph. Joseph. Now, a lot of people name their kids Joseph, so you know the story's got to end well. Uh, but we're going to go through the story of Joseph, because Joseph is the epitome of highs and lows. There should be a graphic on the screen. Look at that. Yeah. I didn't draw it. Uh, Chloe did. She's amazing. Um, she's got good graphics. So uh, anyway, Joseph's life is uh, pretty wild. Joseph was a, one of the youngest sons in a decently large family. He had a lot of brothers. Um, and generally in this time period, the oldest brother was the favorite. But Joseph was lucky. Joseph was the favorite son. Uh, Jacob, his dad, loved him. He gave him special gifts. He spent more money on him than the other brothers. And the other brothers really got super jealous of Joseph from, like, from the jump. They could not really stand this guy. He was smaller than them, younger than them. But for some reason, Jacob's like, this dude's my favorite. They were like shameless about picking favorites too in Bible times. Just a small little note there. So if you do have a favorite, you're kind of in good company. Um, but the Joseph, so Joseph also had a knack for interpreting dreams. Okay, again, crazy thing. Like he would, ha people would have dreams and Joseph could literally tell you like, here's what God is saying from that dream. It's a great tool to have, okay, in your toolbox. Like I can interpret dreams. One day Joseph has a dream. This kid's feeling on top of the world. He's a young teenager, has a dream that his whole family is one day going to bow down to him. Now he doesn't keep this dream to himself and like write it in his journal. No, he gathers his whole family around and says, guess what, guys, you're going to bow down to me in a few years, so get ready, okay? Didn't go over well at all, okay? So his brothers, because they hate him, they plan, we're going to murder him. We're going to kill him. This is what family dysfunction to the nth degree, okay? We're going to kill him, and they were dead serious. Like, they were going to kill this kid, and so uh, they get him alone, and they decide through a series of, like, conversations, like, we probably shouldn't kill him. Let's just throw him to the bottom of this pit. Uh, it was like a well, and the well's empty. They throw him down there. They rip his jacket off. They pour animal's blood on it. Again, crazy family, okay? They pour animal blood on it, and they tell their dad, hey, uh, Joseph actually got uh, eaten by animals when he was out shepherding, doing his shepherd's thing. The Bible says that J uh, Jacob, Joseph's dad, he mourned for many days. And a little spoiler alert, I think it was like somewhere around 30 years before, from this moment to the time when Joseph and his dad were reunited. So when the Bible says he mourned for many days, the life was basically over for 30 years in Jacob's mind, okay? It's not going too well. But they didn't actually kill Joseph. What happened was some slave traders were coming through the area. So they said, we got an idea. Let's just sell him into slavery. This is like none of this makes any sense, okay, guys? But they pull him out of the pit, and they sell 
Joseph into slavery. This is not going well. This is not a good thing. Okay, they sell him to slaves. He ends up in Potiphar's house. Okay, Potiphar was one of the king's officials. Okay, he's like, he's up there. He's one of the guys in charge. Joseph's in Potiphar's house. What's so interesting about Joseph is when he's in Potiphar's house, he just decides, I'm going to work with what I have. I'm just going to do this thing. I'm going to work. Potiphar liked Joseph so much that he puts him in charge of everything that he owns. Like, this is a slave guy in charge of everything. So things are actually kind of looking great for Joe at this point. He's like, this is, like, as bad as it is, I'm making it happen. Well, then uh, Potiphar's wife, uh, she starts looking at Joseph, and she's like, the Bible literally says, like, and Joseph looked like a whole snack. And so uh, Potiphar's wife was like, I need to get with this guy. And so day after day, she's telling Joseph, like, dude, let's go. We got to do this thing. Potiphar's gone. He's put you in charge. Let's go. And Joseph's like, no, we're not going to do that. And she's like, no, you really need to sleep with me. This is how it's going to go down. And he's like, no. And then finally, she like literally, the Bible talks about it. She grabs a hold of his jacket. And she's like, this is happening, and it's happening right now. And Joseph like rips the jacket off, runs out. Well, this is Potiphar's wife. So she just starts screaming, and she's saying, one of the slaves, he tried to rape me, is literally what goes down. So obviously, they're going to believe her. They throw Joseph in prison. Not good. Now he's in prison. He's actually in the king's prison, okay? And so now Joseph has gone from uh, being, having a really great dream that he was ir- really arrogant about, thrown to the pit, sold into slavery. Uh, now he's being wrongfully accused and thrown into the king's prison, okay? But Joseph just does what Joseph always does. He works with what he's got. And he starts running the prison. Literally, the chief jailer is like, dude, I'm just going to put you in charge of this thing. I'm going to take some time off. You run this thing. Joseph ran that prison so well that one day the king's cupbearer and baker were thrown in the prison. One day they came in, and the Bible says they were looking downcast. And Joseph's like, why are you guys so sad today? It's like they're in prison. But he ran that prison so well, they weren't even sad most of the time. Like, he just ran that thing so well. And he's like, why are you so sad? They ended up having dreams. And again, Joseph, he can interpret dreams. So Joseph's like, listen, here's what your dreams mean. Tells them, blah, blah, blah. Tells the uh, cupbearer, hey, when you get out, he goes, remember me. I've been wrongfully accused. I don't belong here. I shouldn't be here. Remember me when you get out. Obviously doesn't remember. He's forgotten. Uh, And so it's another two years and then Pharaoh ends up having a dream, and the cupbearer is like, oh, my God, I know a guy. And then Jake, uh, Joseph gets out. Ultimately, his brothers come back. He remembers his dream. His brothers bow down to him. Story comes full circle. He saves Egypt from famine. Amazing story. A lot going on. It's a roller coaster of emotions, and we really need to unpack it because it's crazy. Because Joseph actually, which you might not know, is he actually chose a steadfast life through the entire thing. He never looked at a situation and said to himself, I'm out. This, is, this isn't even, I don't even know why we even, why would we even continue? And part of me wonders is if, like, our lives get so uncomfortable, how often do we not so, uh, respond in a steadfast life? How often do we not choose steadfastness? And there's a couple other uh, responses that we generally have as humans. And the first one is that I think if we're not careful, we quit. Now, when I say quit, What I mean is we actually make a stagnant home in our problems. We make a stagnant home in our chaos. Because here's here's a news flash that it might be hard to wrap your brain around. When you said yes to Jesus, what you didn't necessarily say yes to was him removing you from all of your problems. Like when you said yes to Jesus, this wasn't a genie in a lamp that gave you three wishes and you got to wish this problem away, you can fix my marriage, and you can get me a job. Like that, that actually isn't the thing you signed up for, but so often you, you are making a home in our problems. Like we kind of have to. 
Like at some point there is chaos around. It's like so with my, with my kids, I've got a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, and a one-year-old. The one-year-old is perfect. She does nothing wrong, okay? And so the, 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 my seven-year-old Wes, he is like a mad scientist, and his room is utter chaos. I mean, it is like, we've gotten to the point where it's like you're trying to raise responsible children and they take care of their stuff. Like, we get it, okay? We understand. Like, make your bed. Get it. Go into his room and you're like, I don't even know what to do. So basically what we've decided is, as long as you can have a path from your bed to, like, the door so that we don't die if we need to get you and you don't die if you need to go to the bathroom at night, we'll live. But on Saturday, you're spending eight hours and you're going to clean. That's how this is going to roll. Um, but he is, he is basically, like, he knows where everything is in his chaotic room. Like, he's, I mean, he's there. He's making it happen. He thinks he runs this business. Like, the whole thing is unbelievable. Um, but he's, he's made his home in the chaos. And what's interesting is you and I, sometimes you have to make your home in the chaos, Sometimes you actually have to get kind of comfortable making it. In fact, in Genesis chapter 39, it says this. It says in verse 2, he says, The Lord is with Joseph, so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. Then it goes on and says, When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes, and he became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of the household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. Joseph lived in the house of his master, but he didn't quit. Joseph never grew stagnant with his, with his situation. He never suffered from apathy, this feeling of complete indifference. He made his home in his discomfort, but he didn't stop working. He made his home, but he didn't actually stop living. He actually did whatever he could with what he was given. But apathy will attack your ability to continue. And the thing with quitting is it is so obvious when someone quits. Like you've probably either been there or you know someone who has. Where they're going through something and you actually watch over the course of time kind of the life and the purpose kind of just drain from their eyes. That person who used to be so energetic about where they were going in life, what they were trying to accomplish, the things they were doing. And then over the course of time, they've kind of lost the luster for life. You can see it. It is so obvious. And the saddest thing is to watch someone lose their fight. The saddest thing is to watch someone make a stagnant home in their problems. A home because nothing good has ever grown from stagnation. Even water is toxic when it just sits out. But the stagnant home is a thing that will kill you. It's like when people say the marriage is just not worth it anymore. We've tried everything we could. We've been to this counselor, that counselor, just... It's not going to work anymore. Someone who gives up and trying to build better relationships with their kids, it's not worth it anymore. You've succumbed to the addiction that has gripped your life, and you're just like, I guess this is just my lot in life. Have you ever been around people who just say, I guess this is just our lot in life? They've quit. They have chosen apathy over doing what they only could control. What's interesting is that Joseph, if anybody was like justified in quitting, it would have been Joseph. Joseph literally deserved nothing that he got. If anybody could have just sulked in their despair, it could have been Joseph. No one would have even thought differently. Of course, you've been, you've been sold into slavery. You've been wrongfully accused and put in prison. We get it. Like, this is depressing, and it is hard. But Joseph, he was, he was okay with planting roots in a place that was uncomfortable and growing. Joseph was actually okay with planting roots and allowing God to use him with what he could control. Sometimes... Our problem is that we focus on the things we can't control. 
If you want to start living a steadfast life, you need to focus on the stuff that you can control, and you have to trust God with the rest. In fact, in Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't worry about tomorrow. He literally says it. Don't worry about today has enough trouble of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow. Today, we are so tied up with tomorrow. Like, how long have you been holding out for tomorrow? When's the last time you, got, you, you have said, God, thank you for today. Thank you for right now. Where am I? I am right here. And what can I control? I can control right now. Thank you for today. Maybe Joseph found favor in his problems because he only did what he could actually control. So how often are you stressing out about things that are completely out of your control? We quit. We suffer from apathy. The second response that we have is that we, we eject. We just eject from the path altogether. We just eject ourselves from it. We find the shortcut to the journey. It's a perceived quick fix. Whatever's going to make me feel really good right now, that's the decision I'm going to make. We eject. This is actually a lot more subtle than quitting, but it's scary. Because here's the deal. We all really want a quick fix, okay? Now, I, again, like I've told you this before because it's me being vulnerable and it helps me, but I don't work out, okay? I just don't. It's something that it's just, I'm trying not to own it as a label that I'm going to be this out of shape guy, but whatever. We are what we are. And so, um, and so now my, my friend, Luke, who's the campus pastor at uh, Greece, if you've never met him, uh, he is the most ripped individual that I know, okay? I don't know what it is. I don't understand who's got time for these kinds of hobbies, but this dude's always working out. He's doing, like, these long triathlons, which doesn't even make sense to me. Like, who's, like he's swimming for miles. I just don't even understand that. Um, but anyway, he's jacked, and he knows that I'm, like, I'm like the way I am. So he, I think he's starting to get nervous about my health because, like, he's the fit one. I'm the good-looking one. It's the tension we bear, and, like, it just is what it is. And so, like, he, like... The other day, a couple weeks ago, he comes up to me, and he's not even asking me to come work out with him at this point. He's, he feels like he's lost that battle. He literally comes up to me. He's like, Josh, let's just try three meals a day. Let's just start there. I was like, all right. Like, I'm a six-year-old. He's like, let's eat our breakfast. And so, like, he's, like, asking me, now, do you eat breakfast today? It's like, yeah, relax, okay? Because this is what I do. Because I've learned some things about the body. If I just have a cup of coffee, my body forgets that it's hungry. So you just, I just, if I just pound a couple cups of coffee, I'm good till about 10 a.m. And then what do I do? I grab a couple more cups of coffee, and I'm good. Like, I make it to five. Like, I'll get there, and I just, I house dinner. Like, and my wife knows, she's, she knows if I ate lunch that day or if I didn't by how quickly and how much dinner. It's very unhealthy. I get it. But I can mask my appetite with caffeine. It's insane that I do this. I can get a quick hit from caffeine, and I'll be good. Coffee is an amazing tool if you're looking for a quick fix to your appetite. But what's crazy is that how often are we shortcutting our lives and trying to find quick fixes for things like caffeine to get through uncomfortable seasons in life? And in fact, Joseph, he did it. He, he, was, he was right on the edge of ruining all of this. And it's actually a really subtle part of the story in, verse, in chapter 40. Now, he just talked to the cupbearer. He just talked to the baker. He interpreted their dreams, and he tells the cupbearer, like, you're going to get out, and Pharaoh's going to reinstate you. The baker, he was going to die. Real sad story. But the cupbearer, he's getting out, and he's getting back into the game. And he tells this to him in verse 14. He says, but when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention, mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. 
I was forcibly carried off from the land of the, pre- from the Hebrews. He hasn't forgotten. And even here, I've done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. Get me out of here. I don't deserve this. It's like trying to find a loophole for the exasperated soul. I don't deserve this. Get me out of here. Now, obviously, the cupbearer forgets him. But Joseph being, he probably just wanted to get back home to his dad. He probably wanted to get even with his brothers. He probably wanted, he, he probably missed home to some extent, but also wanted revenge. Like the, he just, and he knew I'm wrongfully accused. Get me out of here. Because his finite mind, it could not comprehend what was being developed in the background of this story. He just knew this is an injustice. Get me out. Now let's just imagine that the cupbearer remembered him. Let's just, let's just go down this path. The cupbearer, because what ends up happening is Joseph's in prison for two more years. Pharaoh has a dream. The guy in charge has a dream. Joseph, the, the, the cupbearer then remembers, oh my God, there's a guy in prison who interprets these. Let's get him out here. Joseph ends up being put second in charge of all of Egypt about a year or two later. Imagine if the cupbearer gets out and he's like, listen to what happened to me. There's this guy in prison who interprets dreams. He was actually wrongfully put there. We should let him out. Maybe on that day, Joseph would have been remembered. But I can promise you that the course of history in his life would have never been the same. He probably would have been a forgotten figure in history if that cupbearer remembered Joseph in prison. There was other things that needed to happen, other things that even needed to be developed in Joseph to be ready to be in front of Pharaoh, interpret the dream, and then actually take charge of all of Egypt. This is never the way that Joseph would have wrote the story. But if it went Joseph's way, if the loophole actually worked, we probably wouldn't be talking about Joseph today. So what are you shortchanging by trying to find shortcuts to the journey? What quick fix are you trying to find? What, what emptiness are you trying to mask with pseudo-happiness in order to get through the uncomfortable season you found yourself in? Nothing ruins a journey faster than ejecting too early. And here's some emotions that might cause you to eject too early. Are you dealing with uh, un- unresolved offense, resentment? Because what that will do is actually build up walls, and now it's just you in, your, in, in like the isolated circle, and you feel like there's no, I have to get out of this mess. And we actually think that ejecting ourselves is going to help us deal with the offense, but it's still lingering. And now it's going to turn into bitterness, and you actually don't get over it when you eject. Unmet expectations is another reason to eject too early. I actually thought this was going to go differently. I got to get out of here. Isolation and silence. Very few good decisions have been made just between me and God. It's just me and God taking care of this one. That's a really good way to blame God for the problems, but it's not a great way to make lifelong decisions. Even injustice, warranted pain can cause, or unwarranted pain can cause an early ejection. You didn't deserve it. You shouldn't have gone through it. But if you actually live in it and you allow that thing to be the focus of your life, it could actually cause you to eject from your story too early. And what's crazy is that ejecting is not actually quitting. See, quitting is obvious. No one really wants to be around a quitter because there's something about it where the, the soul is kind of drained and you can see it. Even in conversation, it's like, man, like, I just wish you could see like, the joy that can still be found in your story. Ejecting, though, ejecting looks sexy. Like, as it look, you can get people to buy in to shortcutting the journey. It's easier to get people to buy in because at least you're still doing something. But you know deep down you're actually ejecting yourself from where God needs you to be. It looks sexy, but it's just 
as pervasive. It was only short-term reprieve from current dysfunction. It's actually folly masked with earthly wisdom. So the question that I have to ask myself is, how do I even make my decisions right? See, early on, my dad told me, don't even, you can't even worry about making the right decision. You just have to make your decisions right. Because there's certain things about life you just can't control. So you could make a decision, doesn't go well for you, but at least you can be confident if you've made your decisions right. Now, I am not a boat person whatsoever because I don't like outdoors, okay? So it's just like how we roll. But I do know at some point in history, there were harbor lights, okay? And if you were going to drive a boat, I don't know if you drive a boat. Do you, I think you do. You drive a boat, and when you're going into the harbor, you line up all the lights so that your boat would not run aground and you don't damage your boat. And when you're making decisions, you actually have to be confident that you have harbor lights. You have people that you are surrounded with that you can actually check the boxes off to say, you know what, I've actually gone through this in a wise way. I'm not just flippantly making a decision because I'm uncomfortable. I'm not just doing this because I feel like it's going to be better for me. I've actually talked to the people around me. I've got, so for us, what I do is you can actually trust your gut on a lot of things. So what do you feel on the inside? You got to go with your gut. If you're married, what does your spouse say? If it's just you in your room, you pray and you come out and you're like, honey, I've made a decision. We're done. Like, it's not a good decision-making process whatsoever. What do the mentors around you say? What do your parents say if you still have a good relationship with your parents? What do your friends say? Because you actually trust your peers because the wounds of a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. If you have found yourself, by the way, just surrounded by people who are always saying yes to you and never telling you that you're being a ridiculous human being, you need to find better friends because the wounds of a friend can be trusted. So how do you go about making decisions is actually going to help you not to eject from situations too early. It's great. Don't eject. And the third response that we have is living deliberately no matter what. Living deliberately no matter what. It says in Genesis 39, the steadfast life, because the Lord was with Joseph, he found success in whatever he did. He found success in whatever he did. You want to change the world? What changes the world is steadfast and consistent people. People who are in it over the long haul. People who understand that on surface level, the metronome of the steadfast can look like a boring life. They don't focus too much on the high highs, and they definitely don't focus too much on the low lows. So it's not a sexy lifestyle, but that is the lifestyle. The metronome of the steadfast is the lifestyle that literally changes the world. It is people who are okay with being uncomfortable. It's a far-reaching posture, but it will save your future. When you say yes to living life by the metronome of being steadfast, it will save your future. Because what's interesting is Joseph actually could not have decided his way into his own better future. He had zero control. In fact, it says later in Genesis, in chapter, I believe it's in chapter 40. I didn't give them this verse, but it's okay. Uh, it says that he actually, for, it's, uh, no, it's later than that. It's chapter 40. Uh, in chapter 42, his family's there, okay? Joseph's family comes back, and they're actually there, and they're literally bowing down to him, okay? And it literally says, then he remembered his dreams about them. We're led to believe that through all of this, Joseph was so steadfast that he actually just stopped following. It wasn't even about the dream anymore. It was like, what can I do today to live with purpose, See, so often we say, hey, you just got to chase your dreams. Every, every commencement speech ever, 
It's like, just follow your passions and follow your dreams. It's like, that's actually ridiculous advice. But what you should actually do is find your purpose in life. And whatever you put your hands to, be steadfast. Whatever situation you find yourself in, find your purpose in that situation. Come hell or high water, I'm going to live with purpose. Not enough can be said about the steadfast life. So what do we do with it? I believe we need to practice the presence of God. Brother Lawrence, he's an old-time old writer. He talked, about, he talked about practicing the presence. The divine company of God. I mean, think about this. There, it's, it, there's a God, the creator of the universe, that in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your struggle, he wants to have a relationship with you. Divine company with God. If you're in church for a while, they call it, we, we would call it spiritual disciplines. A discipline is actually gaining the ability to do something you've not been able to do. A discipline is the thing that actually gives you power. A discipline is the thing that actually makes you a stronger human being. Disciplines make you smarter. They make you wiser. Spiritual disciplines. Another way to look at it is practice. How are your practices? If you're in a tough situation, how is, how is your prayer life? Because they actually, like, he's actually Emmanuel, God, with us. What I find so amazing about Jesus is he's been in the same pain that I've been in. And I love that he said, he said, like, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So are you uncomfortable today? How's your practice? Are you stressed out? Wondering how are we going to make ends meet? How's your practice? Are you burned out? Are you cashing in on your problems? Like, how is your practice? God is looking for a steadfast spirit in the midst of an uncomfortable world. So maybe you do have a restless soul today. Jesus actually wants to come and be with you in your pain. It's, it's a theme all throughout Scripture, because even David said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what he didn't say is, thank God that you took me out Thank God that I made a stagnant home. Thank God that you saved me from, though, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me, resolutely unwavering in that truth. If there's one thing that you and I can count on moving forward from today, then no matter what happens, that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with us. You might not know what you're going to do for work next week, but even though you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you can be resolutely unwavering. You can be steadfast because there's a God who loves you. There's a God who cares for you. There's a God who wants to be right there with you. And it might not be sexy, but at least we are unwavering. So you might feel like you're in the pit today. Can you be resolute in the pit? You might feel like you're in prison today. Can you be resolute in the prison? You might feel like you're dealing with injustice, but in the midst of injustice, can you be resolutely unwavering? Because church, I'm convinced that the yoke and the teaching of Jesus is easy. I'm convinced that his burden is light. And I am convinced that no matter what you are going through, you can find rest for your souls. It is the miracle and the mystery of who Jesus is that in the midst of hard and trying times, the metronome of the steadfast life is easy and it's unwavering.
So church, let us be a church. Let us be a community that lives in a city that is unwavering. That come hell or high water, come good or come bad, we are unwavering in our commitment to follow Jesus, to practice well, to love people better, to consistently try to make our city better no matter what happens. Thank you, church. Let's pray. God, God, we thank you that you are for us. We thank you that you are not against us. God, we thank you that your steadfast love never ceases. God, we thank you that you are steadfast with me. God, I thank you that you are unwavering in your love for me. And God, I pray that in response, I would be unwavering in my determination to follow after you. That God, I would be unwavering. That as a church community, we would be unwavering in our steadfast nature. God, we thank you that you're with us. We thank you that you're for us. And give us rest for our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.